through 13. This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And, you know, if I take both Sundays together, last Sunday was the revelation of who is Jesus. And we talked about that. What does the world think, who think Jesus is? Uh, what do they think? And just like 2,000 years ago, people have the wrong impression today. Well, Jesus clarified that for us. So number one, who is Jesus? He's the son of the ever-living God. He's the, the one who, you know, God who came, took the form of human flesh to come and die for our sins because he loved us so much. So who is he? Number two, today we're going to look at his glory. Uh, and I think that, again, I, I said this before, any mental baggage, if we could try to just kind of leave it at the door because I think this is a, a very inspiring portion of Scripture. Uh, a, a greater revelation of who Jesus is. He shows his uh, three disciples, you know, his deity just comes f- out through his human body, and we're going to talk about that as well. It's kind of a little bit of a brain teaser. So with that glory, number three, he took that to the cross. Why? Because of every single individual in this room. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And even the sins I'm going to commit in the next five, ten years, should I live that long, those sins are also paid for at the cross. The fourth point, God does things, right? He, he actively seeks the lost. He looks for us. He, he shows his love for us. And what do we do? There really has to be a response to that. That's called a relationship. Any relationship we have with other humans that we love today, there's this give and take. It's a back and forth. And it's the same thing with God. Except with God is he loves us more than we could ever possibly love him. So he really does all the work. And he just asks that, we would use our free will to respond to that love. So I, I really believe that this is um, a transforming portion of Scripture. And again, we're going to table, I am still didn't finish uh, chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. We're going to move that up to next Sunday, for those of you who are astute and have been following this. So let's jump in in Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 1. And he, Jesus, said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. What an enigma. And he's speaking to his disciples here. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, And they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. 
This is known as the transfiguration of Christ. Transfiguration is a big word, transfiguration. Five syllables, okay? And in the Greek, the word, if we go back to our Greek dictionary or lexicon, it's metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis or a change. But the change, I submit to you, is from our perspective. They saw Jesus in a way that they had never seen before. It was mind-blowing. It blew their doors off, so to speak. But remember, he was always God. Somehow he was able to, to clothe that deity with the human body. And that's really the real miracle. This is a miracle, but that's more of a miracle. How do you, how do, you do that, Lord Jesus? You know, and probably many of the questions we might ask him. So in this portion of scripture, his deity shines through his flesh and bones and blood and clothing. So that is this, this radiance that they see. Verse 1, I read it again. He says to them, before this happens, assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. A little bit of heaven on earth. How's that going to work out, Lord Jesus? And this is what we see. This statement in verse 1 might have been the antecedent as well as the preparation for the transfiguration. And in context... The transfiguration may be a little taste of what he said just a few verses ago. Remember, chapter delineations came later. In Mark 8.38, Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his, of his, of his Father with the holy angels. And if I tie that into the, the, um, the uh, teaching that we did on Revelation a while back in chapter 4, you're presented with the throne room of heaven. It's right there on the page. Now, it's kind of hard, and i got to tell you, I struggle with this. Lord, how do I get these words, you know, how do I get it to them? How do they absorb it? I mean, probably seeing what these three guys saw, words could never do it justice. So how do I do that as a mere man, as a mortal? How do I do that with just voice and language versus kind of an experience? We do the best we can. But Jesus speaks about this one great day, you know, the one, the throne room of God, the sea of glass, the living creatures, and the three men, James, John, and Peter, get a little taste of heaven on earth. Verse 2, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and led them on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Could you imagine this experience? What was going through the minds of the disciples? <laughs> I mean, you ever, get the, um, you ever hear the expression sensory overload? Sometimes if we're in a crowd or we're performing or uh, there's just a lot of input and output of the brain. You know, we, co- we come home and we crash. Maybe we take a nap. I know pastors who do two or three services on Sunday, and the first thing they do after they eat when they get home is they take a nap. It's sensory overload. So just imagine this, because this literally was out of this world. Right? And that's what I like to do when I preach. I like to say, let's put ourselves in that situation. Let's, let's think about what they were going through, what they were experiencing. How would we react in those situations? Now, before I get into really what was going on here, Did you notice that only three out of the 12 disciples were taken up, right? James, John, and Peter. Maybe the Lord in his wisdom knew that the other nine were not ready. 
And I got to tell you, even today in discipleship, if you're discipling somebody and you take them aside and say, listen, you're not ready. I can see that we, we can't continue until these things are dealt with and met. Right? So for whatever reason, the other nine were to stay where they were. And we're going to go next Sunday and talk about what happened when the three and Jesus came down from the mountain. Um, and, and that's going to be interesting as well. And that's a hard thing to do, to break somebody and say, you're just not ready for this. It's not your time. Maybe in another few months, maybe in a year. I tell you, even Peter didn't do that great, as we'll see. The other situation is Jesus was discipling 12, and they still had an immaturity. They still had a worldliness in them. It took them a long time to really get what he was feeding them, to really start to walk spiritually on their own. Because in Matthew 10, we're going to get to that, there's a rivalry, there's jealousy between the disciples. They're talking about who's the greatest. <laughs> Could you imagine? Jesus must have had a real lot of patience to walk with these 12 guys and constantly dealing with their, their behavior and trying to correct them. So let's jump into this. Number one, what does Jesus do? He takes them on a high mountain. How many of you in this room have ever been on a high mountain? It's exhilarating, isn't it? For a few years, I lived in Pennsylvania. I got to tell you, you know, New Jersey's pretty mostly flat, and you got the beach, and it's awesome. Once you go into Pennsylvania, you got these rolling hills. And I've been to these mountains sometimes in the evening and, or in the daytime, and you feel like the sky is right there, like you could, you could reach out and touch it at nighttime. The, the stars are clear, right? And, and it's like the heavens are above you, and below is the world, the distractions of the world. I don't think it's by mistake or coincidence. Jesus was very calculated in everything that he did. He took them on a high mountain, probably for a way to tune out distractions for these men, right? I mean, Jesus could do anything. He was the son of God, but he had to consider the men he was discipling. And God is also jealous for our time. And I've said this many times, I really think that sometimes it's the computers and the technology that are the distractions today. They had their distractions 2,000 years ago, but we have our distractions today. And I've got to be honest with you, if we're always on social media and texting and on the computer and on the internet, God's not going to say, hey, I'm desperate for your attention. He is fabulous. He is awesome. It's our loss if we can't break away from some of these distractions and listen to what he has to say. There was a video we put on the church Facebook wall a while back about, it was Coffee with Jesus. And it was kind of a, a funny, it was a parody, and a guy dressed like in a robe, and he was Jesus. And, you know, the, he's talking to the one guy, they're having coffee, and the guy just keeps talking at Jesus. And when Jesus tries to get in a, in a word edgewise, he finally goes to speak. The guy goes, oh, look at the time. Amen. And he leaves, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, you know, we miss so much if we're not receptive. We're not in tune. We don't prepare ourselves to receive what the Lord has to say to us. Second thing we see is that Jesus is transfigured before them. Now, I love to do this. I always go into the synoptic gospels, the parallel gospels. What do the other writers have to say? What other detail did they put in? Let's paint this picture as complete as possible. So Matthew tells us that the Lord's face shone like the sun. Remember, they're using human terms. They're writing stuff down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they can only use terms that we can basically understand. But I imagine, I can tell you that the best picture or rendition or movie done about this, even with all the fancy special effects, could not compare to what actually they were experiencing. So Matthew says his face shone like the sun. Mark tells us he's got the whitest clothes he's ever seen. 
You know, they had methods of bleaching back in the day, and you got dirty pretty quickly in that climate, your clothing. But he's saying, basically, listen, I've seen some launderers, and I've seen snow, and this is whiter than all that put together. Now, remember, Mark was heavily influenced by Peter. You could say that Peter discipled Mark in some respects. So Mark's gospel is really a reflection, a lot, of what Peter saw. All right? So Christ's radiance overtakes his skin, bone, and clothing. You can't contain God. Okay. How many of you did this when you were kids, and you took the really powerful flashlight, you put it up against your hand, and what color are my fingers? Red. Ow. That thing's hot. <laughs> it's a halogen bulb. Just kidding. So basically, if you look at it, um, you can see really the blood coming through there. We have this idea that our bodies are opaque. They're really more translucent than they're opaque. The light in a halogen bulb has the ability to shine through the skin, the flesh, and illuminate the blood. You know, the light rays bounce back and forth, and we see red. That's a halogen bulb. Imagine the deity of, of Christ shining through everything, his clothing, his, his chest, his ribs, his, his skin, his probably beautiful tan that he had. It just beams right through. So I submit to you the real miracle, we think, oh, this is a miracle, the transfiguration. The real mi miracle is how the heck did he contain his deity in human form? Right? That's the real miracle I submit to you. Pretty impressive. Now, some may ask logical questions. One question may be, why didn't Jesus do this for everyone? Why didn't he just walk around glowing so everybody would accept him back then? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> well, remember, Adam and Eve walked with the living God. They communed with him in the garden. Hey, listen, God can multitask. Is what, 8 billion people on the planet? He could hear all of our prayers, see all of what we're doing. Pretty amazing. But back then, he only had to work with two people. They had God's full, undivided attention. And what did they do? They still chose to walk away from him. I'll look at another example. All the miracles and manifestations in the Old Testament. right? The parting of the Red Sea, the, the manna from heaven, the, the quail coming in, the water from a rock. I mean, come on. Not Iraq, but a rock. I've got to be careful with my pronunciation. And they still chose to reject him. Some people say, well, seeing is believing. That's not actually always true. Seeing is not always believing. Let's look at Jesus. He raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He walked on water. And that still wasn't enough. So if he walked around glowing, do you really think it would have made much more of a difference? Probably not. After a few days, oh, yeah, I've seen Jesus. I've seen that. Is he going to do something new for us? This is the way we are as human beings. right? We're always, and it's sad. It's a sad thing. We should never get that way in our walk with the Lord. My question is, is God enough for us? This morning, is he our everything? Does he satisfy? Do we allow him to satisfy those voids in our life or do we always keep looking for something else? The more we keep looking for something else, the more we're going to be dissatisfied. People, relationships, things, stuff. That knew this, knew that. Stuff gets old, man. Your new car, that new car smell after a few weeks, you don't smell it anymore. You're like, oh, this car. You know, just turn a key and... But this is the way we are. And sometimes we have to learn painful lessons when we don't make God our everything. 
and we try to put things in front of God. And I'm just going to be straight with you. In this church and every other church, it's, it's light in the summer. Everybody's doing different things. Now, my assumption, because I like to think the better of everybody, is that if you're not here, that you're home going through the Word. Husbands, are you opening up the daily bread in the morning, you know, before you go on your vacation or Disney World and, and just praying with your family? You know, seeing what the daily bread, seeing what, what the Word has for you. Not that it's rote and we have to do it, but because we get to do it, right? In late September, the place fills up again and we all talk about doing two services again. But that's just the way it is. Another thing that we can look at is possible that this transfiguration, remember, the nine, apparently he didn't bring them up the mountain. If they weren't ready, then maybe all the people weren't ready either. And maybe it would have been a distraction. God didn't come to show off. He is just beautiful. He is glorious. Anything that's good and perfect and beautiful, it's him. Right? When we get to see him and there's no more sin in us and we're in our glorified bodies and we're close to him again like Adam and Eve were, it's just, again, we won't be able to express it. But that's not why he came. He came, believe it or not, the teachings and most importantly, Christ dying on the cross was the most important thing and reason why he came. So those are just my feeble attempts to uh, discuss why I think that he didn't walk around glowing for everybody. And let's look at this thing about clothing. I mean, we clothe ourselves. You ever really, you ever study anatomy and physiology? I mean, the human body, they're trying to make artificial hands, and with all the computer chips and the articulation and the joints and stuff, it's, it's paltry compared to what the human hand can do. You know what I'm saying? And how it can heal and all that kind of stuff. But we clothe ourselves, so we're not a distraction. Jesus clothed his deity, his beauty, so that he wouldn't be a distraction either. He clothed it with humanity. Again, my feeble attempt there. You want to really be encouraged? One day we will have glorified bodies, believers in Christ. Oh, I hear a lot of groans, you know. So if you, you don't like your nose and you don't like the hair that you have, you don't like your knees don't work, listen, one day the glorified bodies are coming. And trust me, you're going to love the new digs. You're going to be absolutely stunned and you're going to have that for eternity. It's going to be able to do things far greater than what we could do. You know, I like working out. I like doing stuff physical. I, sometimes I just push, push, push myself. But this machine has limited capacity. The new ones are, not, are going to be unlimited in their capacity. Right? No more crying, no more depression, no more sadness, no more being hurt feelings. None of that stuff's going to exist anymore. So I just want to encourage you with that this morning. Third thing that we see is that Elijah and Moses appeared with Jesus and they were having a conversation. The Bible says, God says, I am the God of the living. I am not the God of the dead. We get this impression that's wrong, you know, cemeteries and caskets and things like that. That's not who God is. That was as a result of sin. God is the God of the living. Everyone who is with him is alive and well and really enjoying themselves, and I don't care how much you gave them, they wouldn't come back here, right? Only Jesus did, because he loves us that much. Nobody else wants to do it, trust me. All those people that we read about in, in the Bible, all those stories of Daniel and, and, and um, Jeremiah and Isaiah, they are alive and well in God's kingdom. So let's look at this. Moses, he represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets, why is this important? Because the law and the prophets prophesied unto Christ. They were, they were types. Right? Christ is a fulfillment. 1 Peter 1, 
the Apostle Peter's own writing, uh, verses 10 through 12, and I'll condense it. He says, this salvation, the prophets inquired to, to, you know, they were inquired about it, inquired, and the angels desired to look into. So when God was doing his big plan in the Old Testament of saving our souls, even the prophets who got little glimpse and they wrote down Isaiah 60-something chapters, right? He still didn't have the full picture. But now it's, it's, it's all coming together. And Moses and Elijah are looking to Jesus. They're talking to him and they're having this discussion about what he's going to do. So let's, let's go to the next question. What's the discussion about? Well, in Luke 9.31, it says, They spoke of the Lord's death, which he was about to, this word's important, accomplish at Jerusalem. And I'm going to table that for a few seconds. This was an accomplishment, the cross. This wasn't a failure. Although most of the world looked at it as a failure, and his enemies probably said, good, we got rid of him. He was really starting to cramp our style. It was an accomplishment. But it also might have been bittersweet. I could just picture the two, Moses and Elijah, and they're, they're talking with Jesus. And, you know, it's bittersweet because he's there. I could picture Moses saying, wow, the burnt offering, I, I, I told everybody about that. I wrote that in, in, the, in the Pentateuch. And, uh, and, and you, you're actually going to go there. You're going to embody the burnt offering, the, the offering for unintentional sins that, that we do as human beings. We don't realize we do things wrong, but it's still a sin. And, and it still has to be dealt with. Jesus, you went to the cross for that. So here's Moses, and I'm just embellishing a little bit, taking a little artistic liberty. And I could picture Elijah going, oh, yeah, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah uh, you know, 50, 53, uh, you know, Psalm 22. Yes, all our prophetic writings, you, you're, you're the fulfillment of that. So it's, it was exciting to them probably, but also a little bit bittersweet because they were going to see their, their Lord and Savior as well, mind you, going to the cross. Going to the cross. The cross was an accomplishment. As believers, we don't ho-hum, talk about our faith and look in the ground, kick, kick stones around. This is, an, this is an accomplishment. Your Savior died on the cross, that's right, and then he rose again. Try to find him. You know? Look at all the monuments and the landmarks of all the great religious leaders of all time. Now try to find the Lord Jesus. Try to find his bones. Can't find it because he rose from the dead. This is an accomplishment. Okay? The, the, the crucifixion and the substitutionary death for our sins goes hand in hand with the resurrection. They had to go together. Verse 5, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Did you ever feel extremely awkward in a situation and to cut the tension you just kind of blurt something out many times it seems like this is where peter was now peter had a pension for putting his foot in his mouth but i think we can identify with him luke 9 tells us that the disciples were sleeping at one point and when they awoke they saw jesus transfigured with moses and elijah this might have led to peter's garrulousness with his excessive talking with really not thinking so, I mean, you can speculate that if this was in the evening, that um, maybe why they woke up, the disciples, while they were sleeping, if it was dark, because, you know, you know that when you're sleeping and it's dark and all of a sudden there's a bright light, it, it goes through your eyelids. You can see it. And this, more than that flashlight over there, it, it probably woke them up. And quite frankly, the people down below were like, what's that light on the mountainside? He probably lit up the whole night sky, and that's just speculation. But this is what's going on here. Now, the Peter plan 
is to build three tabernacles or three makeshift structures to house Jesus, right, and Elijah and Moses. Remember, Peter's on the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Where's he going to get the equipment? <laughs> he just blurts it out. Let us make three tabernacles. I mean, what's he going to do? Get on a cell phone and call, you know, Camping World or Dick's Sporting Goods? Yeah, yeah. Top of the mountain. Past the big boulder. Uh-huh. I'll send you my credit card over the phone. No problem. Where is he going to get the, inf- the, uh, you know, the information and the uh, supplies to do something like this? But what was Peter doing? Think about it. He was prolonging the situation. Right? This was a mountaintop experience. And I got news for you, brothers and sisters. We have, somebody was just telling me before service about a mountaintop experience, and then reality sets in when they go home. I mean, when the Lord's really moving and really working in our lives, we never want those to end. If you've ever been a part of it, if you've been a believer for a while, and you've used your spiritual gifts, and you're seeing things that are miraculous, you don't want it to end. So Peter is saying whatever he can say to really unwittingly manipulate the situation so it can last for a long time. Remember, tabernacles were used in the wilderness to house the, you know, the, um, the holy of holies and all the sacrificial system that the priests had. And they, when God told them to stop, they would stop and they would you know, take everything apart and, and build these elaborate structures. Then when God wanted them to move again, they would pack it all up and go again. But they had plenty of supplies to work with. Peter wasn't on top of a mountain. Here's another thing funny. I love Peter. I know there's hope for me. Uh, It says, Peter answered. Did you see anybody asking Peter a question? (laughs) He sees this going on. He sees the discussion. Peter's got to, hey, this is good for us. Sure, it's good for you to be there. It'd be great for me to be there too. But Peter answered and nobody asked him a question. Verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. This is exclamatory. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, in Matthew's gospel, it says that after they hear the Father's voice, which we understood it to be, right? He says, hear him. I must, what, what did that sound like? I don't know. Probably had a lot of bass to it. That the, the three fell down on their faces, the, the disciples, right? And, and they were overpowered. I mean, they just, the experience, they just went down on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> And then what did Jesus do? In Matthew's gospel, it says, he touched them and said, arise, do not be afraid. So Peter gets rebuked again. Last Sunday, we saw him get rebuked by the son. Uh, Today, we see him get rebuked by the father. And God still uses him mightily. So for anybody here who thinks that you've made a mess of your life or other family members tell you you're the black sheep of the family or whatever your insecurity is, it doesn't matter. God didn't pick 12 perfect people. Quite frankly, there were no perfect people because they all needed a Savior, including Mary in in Luke chapter 1. She she speaks about God, my Savior, the the child that she's carrying. So I just want to encourage you with that. This should give you comfort. You know, do, do you feel that God has a calling on your life? That's a good thing. Don't let anything get in front of you. Don't let anything stop you. Ask questions. You know, get somebody that you know is a, a Christian who's on fire for the Lord and talk to them, you know, learn, because that's what the Lord wants. Well, why did the father rebuke Peter? Let's look at this for a few reasons. Number one, Peter again was trying, trying to change God's plan. Again, not maliciously. He just wanted this thing to last, right? 
and he committed really what was considered an unintentional sin. And the good news is that the Lord Jesus died for those unintentional sins. Second thing we can look at is that Peter, unwittingly again, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, equated Moses and Elijah with Jesus. He almost spoke, again, not realizing it, that, hey, three tabernacles, them, putting the three of them together, and Moses and Elijah could not be compared to Jesus. If you took Moses and Elijah aside and had an interview with them, they would tell you that as well. Remember, the Father's voice said, hear him. He didn't say, hear them. Hear him. The third thing was, Peter was chasing an experience instead of listening to the voice of the Lord. Now, this is important. In other words, God's word is paramount. It's the most important. We can see that in the Christian community today. People chase experiences. They go from the new Christian book to the new Christian book. They go from the experience at this church to the experience at that church to the experience at that church. And they don't know God's word. They're not putting roots. They're not um, making the sacrifice. They're just all over the place. Last Sunday I spoke about not trusting our feelings. Now, don't get the impression that I'm stoic, because I'm not. I'm Sicilian. (laughs) There's a lot of passion, a lot of emotion, and a lot of opinion bound up in here. Unfortunately, those three often get me in trouble. But what I'm telling you is I do you no good if I'm not teaching you from the pulpit, if I'm not discipling you through the Word, through teaching and counseling that's based on the Word. It's important instead of relying on my feelings. I have to tell you that we as human beings, whether we're Christians or not, we do try to live in the highs. But remember, it's unrealistic. And, and you hear it in the Christian realm, you hear it with uh, motivational speakers. They, 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 they get audiences and they get your money because they try to get you up here all the time. But that's not reality. And if that's what you're hearing in Christian circles, and life sets in and you plummet, now you're unprepared. And you may think things like, God has forgotten about me. Remember, it's based on a false premise, right? The miraculous things in the scripture that the disciples saw had to take a back seat to letting Jesus go to the cross and to living out his teachings. And, and I've spoken to those that they go to these places, Christian, on Sunday, And they tell me that they have goosebumps and it was an experience every Sunday. And I'll ask them, well, what did you learn about God? Uh, What scripture did the pastor use? I don't think we opened up our Bible. So then you can go to an amusement park and get those same feelings. Why waste your time in a church, right? There has to be, it's got to be word-based. Amen? Verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. This is odd to us. How many times do we read that they're talked to about the resurrection, they're talked to about the cross, and they don't get it? We've had 2,000 years of expository teaching. We have 20-20 hindsight at our disposal. They did not have that. Did you ever also maybe with your friends or peers or even in church as a Christian. The Bible says something, and it's very clear. But we have a predisposition. We, have, um, we go into it with preconceived ideas because it makes us feel good. And, and there's this war. 
because we, we know something is right in the scripture, but it, it feels good. Remember when I talked about Peter and he said, you shall not go to the cross? We would look at it, if this was on Oprah Winfrey, you know, they would say, well, that was very wonderful of you, Peter. He, he's the Lord. He's wonderful. And you, you did everything you could. You even tried to fight off the, the guards in the garden to protect your Lord. Remember, what if Peter had won? We'd all be in a lot of trouble right now. So this is why we can't go in there with, into a situation with preconceived notions. It's got to be based on what the Word says. So remember, in the Old Testament, it spoke about a challenging, um, a mighty, victorious Messiah. But remember, the Messiah had to come twice. The first time he came as a lamb. The next time, in our future, he comes as the lion. But they wanted so badly for him to vanquish Rome. And that's not what he came for. So this, it took a long time for this to set in. And, and you see that when we go through the, um, after the, uh, his death and burial, the disciples are really bummed out. They're really bothered by this. And of course, until the resurrection, it doesn't even set in right away. Verse 11, last few verses. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes, the religious leaders, say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Elijah does come first, then restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So understanding, now this is, I'm going to wrap this up, um, the whole idea between John the Baptist and Elijah. Some people get confused because this that they're so close that there's a little bit of overlap. Now, Elijah was a great prophet. We're actually, I just completed um, 2 Samuel, so I'm going to be in 1 Kings on Wednesday night. Love those books. In 1 and 2 Kings, we, we hear about Elijah, the great prophet. He did amazing things. Now, Elijah didn't, nobody witnessed him die, but they witnessed him being raptured literally to heaven. He was taken up in chariots of fire. So in a, in a sense, he didn't die, sort of like Enoch. John the Baptist came, many years later, of course, in the time of Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah, that's in Luke chapter 1. He had striking similarities, and the scribes and the religious leaders did not recognize him for who he was. He came to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, in Matthew 17, 13, it said that the disciples understood that Jesus specifically, when he was speaking about Elijah, was talking about John the Baptist. So he made the connection for them. This is where I put it all together. In Revelation 11, in our future... Revelation was a great study. It appears that Elijah comes back to earth with another prophet. Okay? He gives testimony, he's killed, and then he's resurrected and ascends into heaven, and the people repent afterwards. And actually, uh, several thousand come to faith after that. Similarities with John the Baptist, where he heralded the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, also killed by a rebellious generation, and also people repented unto his ministry. Now, in Malachi 4 5, for some of you, this might be confusing. Talk to me afterwards. Send me an email. It's you know, it, it's you know what the confusing part of it is. It's the fact that we we see linear time. What I just said five seconds ago was the past. What I'm saying now is the present, but it's going to be a past second down the road. What I'm going to say in one second is going to be the future, but then it's going to be the present. You see what I'm saying? So what happens is <laughs> a little confusing. God doesn't see in linear time. God sees time altogether. So what we have to do is we have to come out of our, the way we think and look at things the way he presents it. You see what I'm saying? So Elijah, thousands of years ago, right? John the Baptist, 2,000 years ago. In our future, Elijah comes back to earth. And you can read that in Revelation 11. In Matthew 4, 5 in the Old Testament, 
uh, I'm sorry, Malachi, he says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That was not in the time of Christ. That is a picture of the second coming because it's going to be dreadful to those that are in rebellion. To us, we're going to escape it, right? Okay. So the question is, why does the Lord Jesus do all this? Why does he do all this? What's the purpose of this, this thing for the three disciples and don't tell anybody uh, until I rise from the dead? It's to give them hope because what's going to happen is the, the cross is going to become a reality. Again, put yourself in their shoes. Their savior, he watched, raised the dead, healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind. And then he watched, they watch him, what seems like a helpless position, being nailed to a cross and bleeding to death abused, spit on, hit, and it, it, it's, it's traumatic to them, right? For those of you who are in the field and, you know, behaviorism and stuff, this is traumatic. So what Jesus does is he gives them something to hold on to. As they watch him die on that cross and see him buried, they have to go back to the transfiguration and think there's got to be something more to this because who, who could do that, Right? But I also submit to you that, and this is interesting too, because in Psalm 2, my son and I actually went through this a few days ago, it speaks about this ever-present condition of the world being poised against the things of God, being poised against the Messiah. There's problems in the Middle East. There's problems all over the place. You know what the answer is? The Prince of Peace. You want peace? Look for the Prince of Peace. The world says, no way. We don't want that. We'll try this treaty. We'll try this backdoor deal. We'll try to give them money. This is what the world does. They're poised against the Lord's anointed, the one who was coronated as the Messiah. They don't want that. How does this trickle down to us? I believe this gives us comfort as well. Now, I, I meet a lot of people that come to me privately, tears in their eyes, and they're scared. You know, I, well, they say it's going to come here, terrorism. Well, they say that oil's going to go up. Well, they say, yeah, all that's going to happen. Well, we're $18 trillion in debt. When's the bubble going to break? Yeah, there probably will be another financial crisis. And I kind of smile and I show my teeth and they probably think I'm weird. But the truth is I'm not moved by it because, because I believe what's said in that book. So brothers and sisters, this is to give us encouragement as well. His transfiguration transcends all of time. You either believe that this happened or you don't believe that it happened, but it was done for a reason. Okay. So for the unbeliever, you need to know who Jesus is. When the Jehovah Witnesses knock on your door on a Saturday morning and they sit down with you and they're very nice people and they tell you that Jesus isn't God. You ask them, do you have the same Bible as me? How do you explain all this? How do you explain John? Okay, so to the unbeliever, this is your cue. God is responding to you. This is amazing stuff, stuff I can't even explain. If it was a fabrication, it would be designed to ma manipulate you into a certain stream. That's not doing it. There's still questions that I can't answer. And, and the best Bible scholars can't answer. So this is your cue, unbeliever. Do you want the Lord? Today is the day of salvation. Jump up, run to the front, to the unbeliever, to the believer. This helps us not to get stagnant in what we believe. This helps us not to get stagnant in the Christian community. This helps us not to get stagnant in Calvary Chapel. It isn't about Calvary Chapel or what Calvary's doing or Calvary speakers. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you this morning, whether you're a believer or not believer, God desires a relationship with you, and he desires a good relationship with you. And it's up to you at this point what you're going to do after being presented with that evidence. Let's pray.